Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WG- Legal Face Off. Welcome back. Welcome in. Rich Linkoff and Tina Martini not here today. She can't join us. She'll be back in a couple of weeks. My name is Sam Panionovich. Ben Anderson is behind the glass or under the bed. I don't know where he is at this point in time. But Rich, it's a boys club today on LFO. Wow, it's a busy, busy day. Uh, we've got some great guests. Some, some people we've been trying to get on the show for many years, so I'm really excited. So, yeah, let's get rolling. Great show today. Talk a lot about the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. We'll discuss some voter protection and election fraud and, of course, the legal grab bag at the end of the show. But our first guest, Ryan T. Fitzpatrick, who's a professor at Vanderbilt Law School and a former Scalia clerk. He also wrote a book called The Conservative Case for Class Actions, and he joins us to lead things off on Legal Face. Ryan. Uh, the hearings are still going on. Uh, uh, judge, soon to be justice, uh, Barrett has not, uh, is finished. So we're now, you know, dealing with some expert witnesses, but so many takeaways, so little time. Um, overall, as a keen observer, as a former, um, clerk to Supreme Court Justice Scalia, what's a couple of big takeaways that our listeners, uh, should take from, from this week? With so regards to, all, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, she is the most uh, explicit embracer of Justice Scalia's philosophy that we have ever seen. She says, I'm an originalist and I'm proud of it. And I think this is something of a high watermark for this philosophy um, in political and legal culture in America. You know, people aren't afraid to say, oh, I believe that we ought to interpret the Constitution the way that people who uh, wrote it thought that it, it, it meant. And so I think that's good that, that you know, we don't have to say, uh, oh, we need to update the Constitution using judges. We can do it through the amendment process. It's a more orderly, legally uh, sound way to interpret the Constitution. So I think it's good that she's unapologetic about it. So let's jump into that, because that is really uh, a key issue that some of the Democrat senators are trying to make a big deal of. And you, you clerk for Scalia, so you're you know, one of the foremost experts on this issue. And one of the big issues that came up yesterday was this idea of, you know, whether she would just parrot what uh, the justice that she clerked for, Justice Scalia, ruled. And she quite pointedly, I think in one of her best moments, said, I'm my own person. I have my own voice. And then one of the other senators, I think it was the Missouri senator, said it's a little insulting, which I th- think it was, to intimate that she would simply be a rubber stamp for what Scalia did. You know Scalia. I'm not sure if you know uh, Judge Barrett. You might. Um, what are your thoughts of that exchange, and how do you think she will defer to her textualism background and philosophy while still, as she said she would, believe somewhat in precedence, which is a very complicated question, I know, but what are your thoughts on that? Two questions, and I'll I'll take them both. So um, I think she's absolutely right that just because you're an originalist or a textualist doesn't mean you're going to necessarily agree with every other originalist or textualist. Originalists have to depend upon history to understand what people thought the Constitution meant when it was enacted, and historians disagree. And so originalists will sometimes disagree. We've seen textualists disagree already this last year in that case about whether gays were protected by employment discrimination laws. Uh, The textualists split pretty much 50-50. And so 
it's not going to always be obvious how you come out, even if you have the same philosophy. Where is she on stare decisis? It seems to me that she respects the doctrine in the same way Justice Scalia respected the doctrine. Scalia often said, I'm an originalist, but I'm not a nut. And what he meant by that is he wasn't just going to willy-nilly throw out precedents that weren't originalist. He was going to consider um, all the factors and, 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 and be very judicious about whether or not he was going to overrule a precedent. I think she's going to take the same judicious, pragmatic approach. Brian, you were former spe uh, special counsel for Supreme Court nominations to Senator John Cornyn from Texas, who we've seen this week. Uh, he has, he's still on the Judiciary Committee and asked uh, Judge Barrett some questions. What do you think about the current confirmation process? Certainly it's riddled with politics, and that's always been the case. But you know what? Uh, I found a little bit regrettable this time, and I'm not, you know, necessarily um, a fan of President Trump's nominees, you know, so to speak. But as an objective legal analyst, I have to say that I'm kind of the way the Democrats have used this process really to attack the president through the nominee. I mean, some of the questions the Democrats are asking are basically attacking the president and have nothing to do with Judge Barrett's temperament with her proclivities, with her writing, or the way she might rule on a case before her. It's like, oh, President Trump doesn't believe in global warming. Do you believe in global warming? You know, and I think quite appropriately, she has said on occasion, I don't know, I'm a judge. I'm not an economist, she said. I'm not a scientist. I'm not the president's spokesperson. So you were in these rooms preparing these, at least one senator. Um, is it just a case of that's always the way it's going to be, you know, partisan politics or, or has things evolved a little given the current political climate? So things are much worse than they used to be. Um, they're probably the worst they've ever been in American history in terms of treating our judicial nominees as political footballs. It's really unfortunate. These are talented, accomplished people. We should treat them with respect. We should be grateful they're willing to give up lucrative careers to do public service. And instead, they're really put through the meat grinder. She's had it pretty easy, but just think back to Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, that was a circus. It's gotten worse and worse. A lot of people say it started with Robert Bork. It used to be that if you were an accomplished, uh, talented person, you were confirmed. Scalia was confirmed 98 to 0. It's a um, shock, by the way. That's shocking. When you think of what they would be asking Scalia today versus what they're asking, I mean, it's 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 unbelievable that he would have gotten no Democrat votes, obviously, right? If that was today, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Ginsburg was ninety-six to three. All these people used to be confirmed because they were accomplished, smart people. It's totally changed, and the and both parties, I think, are guilty of using really crummy tactics against each other. Um, I think what the Republicans did to Merrick Garland four years ago was totally indefensible. But if you think of it in context of 35 years of indefensible um, tactics being used against each other, it, it makes more sense. Yeah, and you know what? As someone who, I mean, I'm a bit of a legal geek like you are, and I, I, I love these hearings. I'm, I'm, I'm glued to the actual exchanges on either side where they're actually talking about the law. You so rarely get a chance to hear incredibly smart people like Judge Barrett, whatever side of the coin you're on, it's undeniable that she's incredibly accomplished, incredibly smart, incredibly articulate, and hearing the exchange on actual legal issues is amazing. 
as dismay, as dismaying on the other side is these continued blow up pictures of people who will be affected by, you know, repeal, repealing the ACA. I get it. That might, but enough already. Like that's not what this hearing is for. I want to talk to you about Scalia because you clerk for Scalia. You knew him. Obviously I know the close connection between clerks and uh, justices having had many on, on our show. Um, and you know, his name has been thrown around a lot. This is the first nominee who is a former clerk of Scalia to be elevated, presumably to the court. How do you think Scalia would have felt had he been alive about seeing one of his protégés um, in this position? I'm sure he would have been incredibly thrilled, but tell me more. I think, yeah, he would have been ecstatic. He'd be very proud and he'd be very pleased to see that his ideas, this originalist textualist stuff, this was not well known before he became a Supreme Court justice. These ideas are really carrying the day in legal and political culture. It's very hard to disagree with the idea that the judge is not supposed to rewrite the Constitution. We're supposed to do that. It's very hard for the Democrats to, to disagree with that idea, which is why they focus on these other things. I think he'd be so um, proud to see that his people, his ideas are carrying the day. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. We continue on on Legal Faceoff. Let's talk to Mario Nicholas now, the owner and managing partner of KBN Law, kbnlaw.com. And he wrote something up in the USA Today, how Barrett must skip the election cases. Mario, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, glad you uh, gave me a call. Mario, your article in USA Today surprised uh, me a little bit because, as you point out, you're a lifelong conservative, member of the Federalist Society since law school, and yet you think that a Justice Barrett, who presumably would find in favor of President Trump, if you believe sort of, you know, the cliche that uh, all conservatives would rule in favor of Trump in this kind of case, yet you think that she should recuse herself. Why do you think that? Yeah, well, so a couple of things. First, I mean, I think I think you, you kind of hit a nail on the head that there, this presumption of what a judge will or will not do is often misplaced. Um, I think that certainly needs to be put out there. I'm not so much worried about um, 
uh, uh, Justice Barrett as I am just just the appearance of corruption and the, what that could do to the institution itself. Um, and as someone who is a conservative and does believe in our institutions and wanting to uphold them and make sure that the American people have full faith and credit in them, um, you know, I think it's incredibly important that, you know, if Justice Barrett is confirmed, that she says, you know, it's just too close to the election. I was nominated by someone who literally is saying he's nominating me because he wants me on the bench to rule on these. I can't do that in good faith and actually rule on that. And so I'm going to recuse myself. And I think that would, I would, that would make the most sense. Um, but, you know, whether she believes she could impartially rule on it or not, you know, it'd be the most sense for the Supreme Court and for the American people. And so that's, that's why I think she needs to recuse herself. But yet she hasn't, right? We've now watched uh, two days of hearings and she was asked that question and she gave what, in my opinion, is a vague answer about whether she would recuse herself. I get where she's coming from. She obviously doesn't want to put that out there. But why, if it's so clear to you, as it is to me, that she should recuse herself? It's an obvious conflict of interest. Uh, do you think she did not come out this week and say that? Well, I mean, I think it's just kind of this, this kabuki dance that happens as Supreme Court nominees on, on all kinds of different questions. Um, and, and, you know, in this particular situation, we're caught up even more because we're in the middle of the election, because people have already cast votes and because we have this hyper partisanship around it that, that, you know, she's kind of said, well, this is my team. And so I'm playing with that. Um, I, you know, I, I think, you know, she obviously, you know, danced around that question, uh, which is disappointing. Um, I, I would hope she would have just said, you know, for the good of the country, I think it makes sense. For the good of the court, I think it makes sense. Um, you know, and, and hopefully she will decide to do that in the future. But um, the issue here is that, again, like I've said, it's it's really that appearance of corruption that, that could come out. And you know, you know as well as I do, if she rules on one of these cases um, and she rules in, in a way that is in favor of the president, there is a huge segment of the country that is absolutely going to say, well, now the Supreme Court is corrupt. Um, now the Supreme Court is a problem, which, by the way, could absolutely lead to something that I, I oppose, which would be the court packing scheme. You know, if, if, if Americans do not think that the Supreme Court can be fair and just as it is, um, then that really opens the door to the court packing, which so many of us who are conservative would absolutely object to. So I, I think if she wants to avoid those sorts of issues, she has to recuse. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, you know, we said, I think a lot of us said the same thing after Bush versus Gore, you know, uh, almost half the country was very upset with that decision. And, you know, it led to allegations of uh, political influence affecting the Supreme Court, because that certainly came down across party lines. And by the way, you know, in many ways was um, unlike all precedents by conservatives who generally would defer to states, right? A bedrock fundamental principle of being a conservative, as you know, is you defer to the states. Yet in Bush versus Gore, a conservative majority said, oh, on this occasion, we will take over for Florida. That's a simplification. But my point is, many people thought, said the exact same things you're saying after Bush versus Gore. There was no core packing. It didn't lead to, you know, our, our, our institutions of government falling apart. And we survived as a republic. So what if a Justice Barrett does vote in favor of President Trump in an election case. So what? Is this really going to lead to some of the doom and gloom we're hearing about? 
Well, I mean, I think I think the difference is that we had a set Supreme Court in 2000. We had we had set justices. We didn't have someone who was being nominated after ballots have already been cast, um, being put on the Supreme Court and on the bench. I, I think that is the huge difference. And I've had a few people ask me, well, when is too soon? You know, when is too close? Um, I think there are a variety of different times that you could look at. You know, maybe you should recuse yourself after a nominee has actually been nominated. Um, maybe it would be during the election year. Um, but I, I think at the latest you could possibly do is if you're nominated after ballots have already been cast, you should absolutely be, um, you should absolutely recuse. And so that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at. And I, and I think that's what people will look at when they're saying, well, was this fair? Was this process fair? Was it fair to go before Supreme Court? And I, I don't think we had that many conversations about changing the composition of the Supreme Court back in 2000. Because it were again, it wasn't a it wasn't a post um, it wasn't a pre election discussion. We're having that pre election discussion now, and you know, um, Joe Biden is is refusing to take a position on it. Um, and I think part of it is uh, because if something happens here and Americans truly look at the Supreme Court and say, "Look, the entire process had a monkey wrench thrown in it by this nomination and by her refusing to um, recuse." And now we think we should, in order to counterbalance that, we should have a um, 15-member Supreme Court or a 17-member or a 21-member Supreme Court. Um, it'll give a lot of credence to that. And I think you'll see a lot more weight pushed behind that. Now, a lot of the court packing obviously is based on policy preferences. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, and I, I think that's an unreasonable reason to do that. But if you also add the erosion of the faith and belief in the Supreme Court to act justly, which I think this would do, that's what leads to a real um, um, boost in the momentum to have a, a court packed. And I think as a conservative, like I said, I, I think that would be a huge problem. But that's, that's the path we're going down if she doesn't recuse herself. He is Mario Nicholas, owner and managing partner of KBN Law, kbnlaw.com. Mario, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. You can like Legal Face Off on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And also, after you listen to the show, please rate and review. Let us know how we did. If you like us, three stars. If you love us, how about... How about five stars? That'd be great. Uh, we have a panel now on voter protection and election fraud and two guests, Kimberly Whaley, professor of law, University of Baltimore, and an author of the two books that are over her left shoulder, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why and How to Read the Constitution and Why. Hi, Professor. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. How, nice to be here. Also joining us, a return guest on LFO, Ashley Alvarez, who is now the regional voter protection director at the Arizona Democratic Party. Welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me. Professor, uh, you've been on before talking about election security, possible voter fraud. Tell us today, as we sit here, what, 19 or so, 20 days away from the election, where you think we currently stand on this issue? 
Well, we're seeing massive, massive turnout uh, already, a, lo a lot of it by mail. So, of course, the president, Republican Party, the attorney general has been beating this false tom-tom that somehow uh, voter fraud is rampant with, with vote by mail. Uh, we're going to be counting mail-in ballots. So I think, as I've said before, having thought a lot about this, the way through this election in a, in a manner that preserves electoral integrity itself for America, that is, that doesn't turn our electoral process into a joke is so much voter turnout uh, that there just aren't the slim margins and margins in purple states for there to be serious contests around the legitimacy of any particular election. And I think we're on track for that. I think actually we're in a, as good a place as we can expect to be. Ashley, you're working uh, on the inside on this issue. What are you seeing from your perspective of what are you trying to do to avoid uh, any fraud and uh, voter holdback? Yeah, um, you know, our team is working very hard to make sure that we're doing anything to protect the integrity of democracy. So as far as having poll observers, you know, as far as having eyes and ears on the ground, as far as having you know, the support on the hotline. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the misinformation and the threats to really what is going on from the administration, the current administration is a fallback to their own faults. You know, they're, they're the ones that are providing these things. So we're making sure that we're ahead of everything, that we're really informing people because it's not, you know, protecting the vote is yes, being on the ground and making sure that there's access, but it's equally so making sure that everyone and especially disenfranchised voters have the ability to get that voter education that's necessary to know how to vote and, and be able to, to do it, you know, in a, in a very uh, democratic way to protect, to protect that, to protect that democracy. Professor, we're a couple of weeks now past, uh, you know, what is, in my mind, a pretty disgraceful moment in our nation's history, certainly in debate history, where the sitting president of the United States, the incumbent, called on a neo-fascist group to uh, stand by and be ready to deal with, uh, you know, polls and, and voters on election day. Of course, President Trump has since somewhat recanted that, although who knows, but, you know, still has called for his supporters to be at the polls and make sure that nothing goes wrong from his perspective. What do you make of, of this and what do you think things will look like on November 3rd at, at polls? You know, unfortunately, Rich, reportedly, you know, the Republican Party, the Trump campaign um, have uh, recruited 50,000 or so people to come to the polls to so-called poll watch. And, and it's really important to keep in mind uh, that this notion of voter fraud, there is empirically no meaningful evidence of that, which is why uh, the Republicans are losing some of these lawsuits because once they get to court and they say, oh, we need to have limits on voting, the courts say, show me the evidence of why you need them. They're not coming up with that. That being said, uh, Amy Klobuchar asked the Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, what she thought about bullying at the polls, and she she demurred. She claimed she really didn't have an opinion. And then uh, Amy Klobuchar, a former federal prosecutor, cited a United States Code section that makes it actually illegal. So uh, the president is 
you know, arguably calling for behavior that could put people in some sort of criminal jeopardy. Uh, I do, you know, we've seen it to some degree in, Mar- in Virginia, people showing up the polls, the voter intimidation. It's an old tactic that preceded the Voting Rights Act. It's as old as America, unfortunately, primarily, primarily with African-American voters. But I want to say, it, don't, don't let that keep you from the polls. Uh, there still are good law enforcement people. There are people that are working at the polls, um, like my colleague here on the panel, that care a lot about democracy. And, uh, and we should just move forward. Unfortunately, the president is, I think, desperate at this point to cheat his way into four more years. And I think it's looking less and less likely that the American people are gonna, going to cave. Yeah, to that point, Professor, and Ashley, what we've seen so far um, is what looks to be record turnouts. I mean, it's just empirical right now, but we're seeing, you know, video of some polling places where people are actually, you know, waiting in line for hours on end. It looks like, you know, uh, a One Direction concert or something. 11 hours in the state of Georgia, right? 11 hours. I I don't Uh, well in my history ever seeing that. So, that seems to be a good sign for people taking this idea seriously and maybe backfiring on the president. He thinks that he's going to scare people and bully people into not voting. It seems, at least initially, like the opposite is having uh, is taking place. Yeah, we're looking quadruple uh, registration rates. We're seeing people actually mail in their ballots first week higher than we've ever seen before. So, yes, like it's not working. It's, it's actually doing the opposite. I think he has engaged voters in a different way where they're realizing what's at stake and how important it is to be a part and represented by somebody who cares about your voice. And it's not him. So. Yeah, and that's the silver not lining. I agree with Ashley. The silver lining to this nightmare, really, is that Americans are realizing that at the end of the day, that is what we have, is the right to vote. We can protest. We can write our senators and members of Congress. You know, we can volunteer. We can do all these things. That's very, very important. But the way you actually are exercise your right to be the bosses of your elected representatives is at the polls, and we see a mega bully in the White House. And and I think it says a lot that people are not cowering in this moment. They're standing up for their own rights and for the rights, frankly, of, as I said, sustaining American democracy, which is not a blue, it's a, it's not, not a red cause, it's a we the people cause. Professor, you mentioned uh, Judge Barrett. We're all watching the hearings. We're covering it extensively on our show today. She was asked, by the way, whether she has ever voted by mail. She deferred on that. Um, But what are your thoughts about this idea, which we just covered on the show with another guest, of a Justice Barrett sitting on the court when what will inevitably be a case involving potential election fraud involving this very election? Uh, You know, she hasn't been clear, in my opinion, about whether she would recuse herself or not. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, she has not been clear. I mean, there's just the the fix is in for her. She's going to be on the United States Supreme Court, and my view is that she should take this epic, historic opportunity to be a voice of reason, to be a voice of reassurance to the millions of Americans who don't have a voice in this seat because it's a pure party line vote with no filibuster on the Supreme Court nomination process anymore. Um, it is a conflict of interest because she is she is basically hired by the person who at the same time is saying, this is great, I'm going to win this election by having a Supreme Court that is going to decide this election for me. She's pretended she hasn't heard that. That's, of course, absurd, absolutely ridiculous. She could 
there's nothing banning her from recusing herself. She says, well, there's this judicial canon, blah, blah, blah. I got to talk to my colleagues. This is discretionary. Nothing forces her to do that. But she could say, you know what? I'm going to bow out for the legitimacy of the court, for the legitimacy of my own legacy, and just to not throw kerosene on the fire of the millions of people who are really worried about the fact that I'm being put on this court in this crisis mode without bipartisan support across the country. But she's not. And it's it's really sad as a, as a person to see that, frankly. Ashley, last word on this issue. I, I mean, I think it's a huge conflict of interest. We started voting and she was, you know, she's in the middle of going through these confirmation hearings. And so there's no question, in addition to the fact of who she was actually nominated by, um, that this is, this is an issue. This is something that she should be sitting out on. And I understand she's maintaining her grace uh, with, her political answers this week and, and being very, you know, trying to not give any opinion and do all the things by the book. But at the end of the day, the most important thing that I think if she really cares about this position is recusing herself, is making sure that when we come to this point, because I think he is placing her there very strategically so that he can have somebody on his side, come be it, that he needs that support to say that he won something in, in some way that he's created. So this is, this is a disaster, but I hope that she does a very good job at maintaining the integrity that she claims she's going to be living by. Professor Kimberly Whaley, Ashley Alvarez, thank you both for your time. You're off the hot seat. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Rolling right along here on Legal Faceoff, Rich Lenkov riding solo today. Tina Martini will return in the next episode. And joining us now, Patrick Smith, a reporter at The American Lawyer, to talk about some articles he's published in the last couple of days. Hi, Patrick. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Patrick, so younger attorneys, per the two articles that you wrote, uh, are having a difficult time, more difficult probably than some more seasoned attorneys during the pandemic. Talk to us about what you found um, and why you think this is happening. Uh, from the reporting, I mean, it's a lot of it comes down to the amount of attention that they're getting. So my understanding, a lot of the times, uh, associate development, younger attorney development is often predicated on their ability to learn from people who've been doing it before them. And in the remote atmosphere, it's a lot more difficult for them to get that attention. Um, on top of that, it seems, although it, the downturn in, I guess, the amount of work hasn't been quite as severe as a lot of law firms were predicting initially, 
uh, there still has been less work to go around. And in certain circumstances, whether it's out of convenience or in some instances, potentially work hoarding, uh, they're just not getting a chance to work on matters. And the concern is that as this plays out over the next couple of years or even further, that they're going to be behind relative to where some of their peers were, say, at that point, you know, four years ago. So I want to talk about some of the economics that your reporting uh, uncovered, but I also want to go back to what you said earlier, because we founded our firm. We have a small firm, 30 attorneys, and what we have found is a challenge and some of the feedback, frankly, we've received from young associates is that they have been, it's been difficult for them to progress because of the way we are remote, you know, and, and the, your article talks about being able to walk down the hall and talk to a more senior attorney and get some advice. And you know, the perception is that we're all working great from home and some firms are. We have not, thankfully, had any layoffs. We've actually expanded and, and we're doing great. But what I think we do miss is, to your point, your article's good point, the ability to mentor people face-to-face. Yeah. And I think we underestimate how much young people actually do need that, despite the idea that young people love being at home and want more you know, independence and want more remote learning. I think what, what your article points out and what we're learning is that you know, as you come up, you really do need some uh, face-to-face interaction with more seasoned attorneys. Yeah, and it, I guess it's, in a word, I guess you can call it mentorship. Um, but to say like what you were saying, you know, there are a lot of advantages. I don't think the, I think some people are having an easier time working from home. Uh, I'm sure attorneys are no different than me. I don't miss jumping on the subway and packing in there for an hour and a half each day to get to, to and from work. So that's a little bit less of a stressor, I'm sure, for them as well. But as you mentioned, it's difficult to get that FaceTime. And regardless of how well set up the technology is or how often uh, people are communicating via Zoom, um, there's still, there's, there's a missing element there. And, you know, I mean, you can talk softly about that, like, oh, you can do a lot what you, of what you can do over video. And, and that is true. But the convenience factor and the fact that you're in the same place, I think, limits some of those more casual interactions that actually can be pretty impactful on how someone develops, whether it's uh, knowing how to conduct a meeting or just having that little bit of small talk that helps solidify a bond that maybe a partner wants to work with you more because of that. Um, and those things are missing and they are going to have consequences. Yeah, it's so true. And it's so hard. You know, we do, I do litigations. So we do a lot of trial work, a lot of depositions, and it's impossible to learn uh, how to do a deposition by Zoom. I mean, we're doing that, but I'm, you know, I've done hundreds of them. For a new attorney, you know, the inability to look at a judge in the eye and know how, like, physically to appear, how to speak in someone, how to advocate both in court and a deposition, that can never be done by Zoom. So I am worried that we're losing, you know, crucial learning time from the inability of young attorneys to just be, present and, you know, out there in the moment in the world, being a lawyer, doing lawyer things. Right. Um, let's talk about the economics for a second, because your article also talks on that, and you just mentioned it. You know, the trend that we have seen for a couple of years is that retaining outside counsel in some ways has evolved because inside, you know, the, the clients we work for, corporations, um, law departments, general counsels, they don't want to train, they don't want to pay to train young lawyers. We've seen a trend in some ways, it was dissipating a little bit, you know, before the pandemic, but, you know, for a couple of years, we've seen this idea that I, as someone hiring outside counsel, don't want to pay your young lawyers. We certainly don't want to pay the starting salaries that we're seeing to learn a job. 
Um, how has that been impacted by the pandemic? And are you seeing, to your point, more seasoned lawyers hoarding work? And that makes economic sense when you consider that they're being paid at a higher rate than some young, younger attorneys. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, those are kind of loggerheads with each other, right? As a, as a firm leader and all the ones that I've spoken with are very well aware of some of the, the issues with that. I don't think anybody wants to deliberately sabotage their farm system. Uh, but at the same time, if, you know, the matters that clients are coming to outside counsel for now are a lot more, at least from what I've been hearing, a lot more bet the company type of work. And if their options are Mr. Senior Partner or Mr. Junior Associate, working on those super important matters for them, they're going to want the more, the more experienced hands. So, I mean, it makes sense that they'd want to be wanting to do this. Unfortunately, it has that consequence, as we mentioned, of, you know, shielding the, the associate from actually getting development. And as you mentioned, it is economically good for the law firm because they're getting work done at a higher rate or maybe a partner is taking a partner's rate on something that may have been pushed to an associate previously. Um, so it makes sense for them economically for now. But I don't think, and I think most law firm leaders would agree, that that's a, a tenable uh, course for, you know, over the course of multiple years. I'll ask you one last question before we jump off. So sure. you mentioned FaceTime in your article. Um, you know, when I was coming up, uh, you, you know, you say in your article, the lack of FaceTime is impacting them. When I was coming up, FaceTime was a real thing, right? You'd have to be in the office. I remember, you know, as a law clerk, when I was working in Los Angeles, uh, if I ever came in and I saw my boss's car parked before mine, I flipped out. And I would come in at, you know, 7 a.m. to avoid that. On occasion, he would be there first, and I would just be nervous, right? Sure. But, you know, for years, it seemed like the whole idea of FaceTime was dissipating. It wasn't as important anymore. And the idea was, listen, as long as you're getting work done and as long as you're producing a product, you don't have to have as much FaceTime. But I think in your article, I think, you know, also, you know, talks about that, you still need some FaceTime. There's really no substitute. Zoom certainly isn't cutting it for being present. And we talked about that earlier, but can you touch on this whole idea of FaceTime? Yeah. And again, I, to your earlier point, I think there is a little bit less handholding. I think the profession has kind of evolved in that way and that's fine. You know, lawyers are capable of doing a lot more things now that maybe used to be done by assistants or uh, in other areas, they're, they're just more self-sufficient. So I, I get that that's, a thing, but you know, you don't miss something for the most part until it's gone. So if something's working properly, so the appropriate amount of FaceTime, for example, you're able to produce that product. Only when it's missing do you start to notice that, oh my gosh, this actually is important. Like it's like you mentioned, those things that you you're not taught at law school or you're not taught in the in the manual that you need to be able to be around someone who's done it before in order to learn it. Um, you don't think about that until it's not present. And now it's not present, and the consequences of that are becoming more and more visible. He's Patrick Smith. You can read his work on law.com, reporter for the American Lawyer. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. It is time for the legal grab bag here. Thanks to everybody behind the scenes, Ben and Gabby and Emily. No Tina today. She'll be back in a couple weeks, Rich and Sam with you as we enter the legal grab bag. Joining us today, Olivia Vizacaro, who's the owner of The Less Stressed Lawyer, thelessstresslawyer.com. Hi, Olivia. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Also joining us, Troy LaRavier, who is the president at the Chicago Principals and Administrators Association. Troy, welcome back. My pleasure. Thank you. Our first topic, we do seven. Number one today involves 
you know who, Barrett, and the hearings involving the Supreme Court nomination. So I've been watching uh, the hearings, uh, Olivia and Troy, all week. I, I don't know if you've been watching. Probably no one's watching in depth because it's like, you know, 11 hours of a lot of boring stuff. But I want your takeaway because we did cover some more in-depth things with some of our earlier guests. But, Troy, uh, I know you're, you've been watching it. What are your thoughts on how uh, Judge Barrett has done, some of the questions that have been raised? Do you think it's overly politicized? What, what's your takeaway? Um, I don't think I don't think it's been overly politicized. I mean, the the Supreme Court makes whether we want to call it that or not political decisions or decisions that have political implications. And so she needs to be asked questions about her stances on these things. And in typical fashion, um, she evades them. And that's just not a Republican nominee thing. Uh, pretty much every nominee I've ever seen evades the questions. What I thought was very interesting was the the three-part question on, do you believe that smoking causes cancer? Yes. Do you believe uh, that COVID is infectious? Yes. Do you believe that climate change? And then she asked the question about climate change, three very scientific things. But then when she got to that one, she decided to say that she was not going to uh, express a view on a matter of public policy. Well, all of these things were matters of public policy. All of them were science. Uh, But I thought it was very telling that she would not uh, give a yes or no answer to a a very scientific question in relationship to uh, climate change when she had just done so on two other scientific uh, questions. That one kind of surprised me. uh, And it was a disappointing surprise. Yeah, it's all it's you're right. It's all picking and choosing. And, you know, that's the way I think to your point, these hearings go. It's not specific to Republicans. You could point to the same thing that Democrats have done. It's really unfortunate. But Olivia, and I have to admit, and I've said this you know, on the show, I'm not a fan necessarily of her judicial philosophy, and I don't agree with a lot of her rulings. But I can't deny, having watched her now for a couple of days, what I think is plainly obvious. She's a really smart woman, really accomplished, incredibly you know, well-spoken. I think the moment where you know, uh, Senator Cornyn from Texas said, can you show us your notes? She held a blank, you know, piece of paper with the U.S. Senate on it. Was interesting because usually, I mean, she was obviously well-prepared, but she's incredibly well-spoken. You know, you might not agree with her and you probably won't agree with, you know, some people might not agree with how she rules, but undeniably she's smart, qualified, um, incredibly articulate. And I was also very impressed with her role as a mother. You know, she brought in her family. She has seven kids, um, very diverse family. Um... And, you know, juggling that alone would be an incredible accomplishment, let alone also being a professor and a judge. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? So I think I always have to check myself. I kind of have an inner dialogue going in my head on whether I apply like um, implicit biases to women. So I'm always checking for that first. Like, would I make that comment about a man? Is this a version of me being sexist as I'm watching someone. So I noticed a little bit of myself doing that as well. I, I agree with you. Obviously, she's smart. She wouldn't have made it to this point if she weren't. She wouldn't have clerked for, uh, for who she clerked for, obviously, had she not been intelligent. But I don't think intelligence is the only metric we should be measuring here. And candor is something that I really think that we should expect from people who are going to serve in this capacity, I really appreciate Troy's point about how in 
these recent confirmation hearings, we've really lost an aspect of candor. And Senator Harris, in her questioning, went through and read back a portion of Justice Ginsburg's, uh, then Judge Ginsburg's testimony from her own confirmation hearing, and she gave such an unequivocal answer on the women's right to choose issue. And really seeing the difference in how straightforward the answer was in confirmation hearings past versus what we've kind of devolved into now, which I think has been by design, uh, this politicizing of the court. Um, That being said, I think one of the things I've kind of gone back and forth on, is this just an exercise in futility? What's really the point of sitting through all of this when it's kind of, you know, predestined to go the way that, you know, in my opinion, I don't want it to go, but it is what it is. Those are my politics. And I do think, I've had to stretch my brain, but I do think there is some value in going through this process anyways. And I was recently talking to my uncle actually about this, that, we're, we've had this amazing opportunity over the course of the last year, I think more than even the last four years, but to see the importance uh, in the role senators play in our democracy. And I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, have kind of been asleep at the wheel on the important role that they play in our system of government. And now I'm interested in statewide races all over the country. I would have never been, you know, eight years ago or even four years ago, not to the extent that I am now. So I think there's value in that as well with this process. I love the fact that you check your own internalized sexism. That's not what you call it, but I love the fact that you did that as a woman. I have always said that if we want white people to understand and feel comfortable checking their own internalized racism, and we as black people have to, to publicly acknowledge that we do the same to other black people, Uh, And so to watch you do that was just a breath of fresh air, number one. Uh, Number two, I I don't necessarily think qualifications, you know, this this needs to be about how smart you are, how qualified you are. This has to be, you call it political, whatever, this has to be about what kind of country we want to see. And what I don't want to see is a country where corporations are considered individuals. What I don't want to see is our states that can target, in the words of a federal judge, systematically target African-American voters with surgical precision uh, to keep them from voting, which is what North Carolina did. And thank God the Supreme Court, the federal courts threw that out. I don't want to see that kind of world. And so I should be able to ask the judge what she, what her opinions are on those types of policies. And I should be able to get an answer and not be called political. And if it is political, then, it, then hell, it'll be, it's, it's political. But it's political in the sense of what kind of country and nation I want to live in. Sam's on you. Let's move to topic two here, two of seven. The uh, St. Louis couple who waved their guns at a protest have actually spoken to the president about their case. Yeah, the McCloskeys, we've covered their story extensively on Legal Faceoff, and they rear their heads again. This is, of course, the couple that waved some guns at some Black Lives Matters protesters in St. Louis. Back in June, they have been charged with uh, unlawful use of a weapon, a weapon and tampering with evidence, and they pled not guilty uh, this week, and they have now said that uh, they've spoken to Trump, and also, I believe the Missouri Attorney General has talked about pardoning them. Troy, your thoughts on the McCloskeys? Um, they pointed the guns, right? They didn't just have the guns. They pointed them at these people. Um that in self-defense, their allegation, of course, is in self-defense, right? The the prosecutor disagrees with that. 
Yeah, they were not able to point to any action taken by anyone that would have caused them to feel they needed to defend themselves except the presence of the people. There has to be more than a presence. There needs to be some kind of action these people are taking that would make you feel threatened. But again, we have to go back to this idea of, of bias, right? People in this country have been conditioned to feel threatened by the mere presence of black people, including other black people. I was uh, talking to Ben Jarofsky, one of the most liberal people you'll ever meet. And he told me this story about going under the, the bike walk toward the lake and running into a group of young black men and getting this strange feeling that he wasn't secure. And then the guy goes, hey, Ben. And it turns out it was like one of the kids was like one of his students. And he realized he had this thing in him that he didn't realize, he didn't know he had in him, this this bias. I was walking on the lakefront the other day talking to another principal and we walked past a group of young black men and later on we had a conversation about implicit bias and I said I know I had a feeling when we walked past those young black men that I would not have had if they were a bunch of young white boys as a black man. And so this couple, you know, I have the I have it but I have a sort of light version of it. They seem to have an extremely heavy toxic version of the, the internalized bias that you cannot avoid when you're living in this country. Uh, some of us just kind of have it. Others of us have it and embrace it and make it a part of who we are. And that's what they've done. And they need to suffer because not of- only, Troy, not, not only embrace it, but are brazen enough to then go out of their way to continue to justify those actions to the point where they're talking to the president about it. They have the backing of the president, two people who drew what looked like an AK-47 on people. So it's it's sort of bottom line. We gotta, we gotta keep moving. Olivia, quick thoughts on this one. Yeah, I lean on my criminal defense uh, background for this. And I live in Michigan. I have a lot of strong thoughts on the people that protested the stay-at-home order as well furnishing or coming out with guns in the state's capital. And well, I of course that led to, by the way, Olivia, as you know, that led to some people being arrested for threatening to put your governor on trial, kidnap her and put her on trial. So, I mean, yeah. you know. No, bananas. But I, I even hate to use, like I'm going to self-edit here. I hate to use the term bananas because it's criminal, right? How that even went on, how it was allowed, obviously white privilege is involved there, no questions asked. But I always ask myself in these situations, what would my defendants be charged with? What would be happening if they were black, right? They'd definitely be arrested. It wouldn't even be a question of it. And I think the question of self-defense, obviously that's a defense for trial, right? That goes in front of a, you know, a trier of fact, a finder of fact. So are the charges appropriate? Yeah, absolutely. Under a, a statute of brandishing and pointing a gun, those are unlawful activities. I think the fact that it's already been said that they'll be pardoned is trying the case in the press, which is improper. Uh, and really something that you would just never see if the defendants were people of color. So it's frustrating from that aspect. Topic three involves, I'll just actually read the bullet point on the rundown. Central Park, Karen. Hmm. I mean, it falls right in line with what we're saying, right? These stories, you can't make them up. This is uh, Amy Cooper, who was caught on camera calling 911 and falsely accusing uh, an African-American man in Central Park of threatening her. Uh, he was not threatening her, as we later learned. And it turns out this week she appeared in court on Wednesday on the charge of falsely reporting the incident. But also, according to the Manhattan DA, Troy, uh, this charge 
There's a second charge uh, related to a second phone call, which we didn't hear on camera. We've all seen the video. And this was uh, someone who was in the park for bird watching, not threatening her. And during that call, she repeated this initial accusation and added an allegation that um, uh, Mr. Cooper tried to assault her. Um, so she has now, you know, apologized, of course, but really one of the uh, low points of the last few months uh, that we've seen, Troy. Yeah, um, this added a lot of clarity because if you remember correctly, the, the brother did say, make this benign comment to her during that interaction that could have been perceived to be eluding maybe towards a threat, right? You have to really think through it, but it could have been perceived as maybe alluding towards a threat. I didn't think so. I don't think the average person would, but it could have. But when you ask, so maybe she, so there was this conversation, maybe she actually did believe that she was threatened based on the thing that he said about giving her a surprise or something like that. But then when we look at what happened now and we see that she actually made a false allegation that he actually attempted to harm her, then that takes us back and really affirms that we know that's a lie. And so that the first thing that she said in terms of um, uh, him threatening, her feeling threatened was probably also a lie. And then I would add and end on this, that there were two ways to perceive this. One, she has her own biases and was, was acting on those biases, really believing she was threatened. The second way is, no, she understood her power as a white woman. She understood that this is a black man that she can get in trouble, and she used that power as a white woman. And this second uh, uh, criminal allegation against her really shows that me it was more the latter than the former. Yeah, Olivia, I mean, it's good to see that these uh, incidents are you know, coming to light that they're being, they're, they're, you know, the light of day is being shined on them. Unfortunately, of course, as we know, for years and years, we didn't know about so many of these incidents. And, you know, individuals would be arrested, go to jail over, you know, these baseless allegations. So it's a good thing that these things, these videos go viral. So we know about them, obviously. No, without a doubt. I mean, that is one of the, the positives of having as much technology as we do, being able to document so much of what's been going on for you know, decades, centuries, uh, being able to see it and shed light on it now. I, I totally went the law nerd route when I heard about the, the second call and just more information on this and the evidentiary arguments that would be made on either side, um, going back to, again, my trial <laughs> attorney days, um, on the admissibility of it and how it gets used and whether it counts as part of the ongoing incident that is being charged or if it goes to um, something that, rather than intrinsic to the crime itself, gets viewed as like 404B evidence um, under that vein. So I think there are some evidentiary arguments to be made. I probably would obviously rule that it'd be admissible. I think it's highly relevant, but I think there's some fodder there for disagreement. Our next story involves Broncos running back Melvin Gordon, who had a really good game. He had a 100-yard game with the Broncos, then was pulled over. He uh, celebrated a little too hard. He's going 71 miles an hour in a 35, and then he got charged with a DUI. Yeah, the reason I brought this story up was because it's always interesting. We've covered extensively on the show the idea that um, – you know, the difference between the law and the standard of conduct that professional athletes have to abide by. And I think that's quite appropriate. You know, many think that that's uh, unfair. 
But the fact is, you know, these individuals are employees and they know going into their employment with their teams and then with the league that they have these morals clauses, standard, you know, different standards. And even though Melvin Gordon um, has can avail himself of the presumption of innocence that any individual has, he does not have the right as an employee to not be disciplined. So, you know, there's often this dichotomy, as we said, well, shouldn't you have the right to continue as a player? Shouldn't you be able to play until a court of law determines that, in this case, he is actually guilty of DUI? Well, you know, unfortunately for him, he signed a contract that says that even though you might not be guilty, the perception that is coming from being arrested is enough in today's NFL to warrant suspension, um, you know, even more serious conduct. So our, our serious repercussions. Olivia, what are your thoughts between, you know, you're not getting due process as uh, an employee of certain individual occupations in this country? I mean, I think it starts with you agree to what you agree to in a contract. So if that's part of it, then you know that going in. I was really surprised with how severe the penalties were, to be quite honest, um, through the suspension. The quarter, or not quarter, half over half a million dollars for the incident is quite a punishment. But again, it goes to you assume that risk if you decide to take that on. So I think it, they're trying to do it, obviously, as a deterrent. Whether or not it works in all cases is obviously uh, to be determined, and it doesn't look like it did in this case. But it seems like both parties are advanced enough to where they should be able to make those agreements, and you can sign away your rights. So you're you're a veteran. You're a veteran of uh, school negotiations. You're a veteran of collective bargaining. That's how you and I first met. Uh, you know, uh, what are your thoughts on the punishment that uh, this running back will have to deal with? You know, uh, you would want any individual to avail themselves of the criminal due process system, but through his union, he agreed to these severe penalties, even if he's arrested, not convicted of DUI. So I wonder if, even though it's in the contract, and, you know, I'm not a lawyer, uh, I was married to one once, but <laughs> um, even with these penalties in the contract, uh, is there a precedent where it says, you know, even though this is in the contract, the, 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 the terms of this contract are unconstitutional. Like, you cannot sign over your due process rights in a contract. And has that been litigated? I'd be interested in hearing Olivia's reaction to that. And secondly, um, you talked about the perception. And that takes me back, and I was so glad Olivia said this about the McCloskeys, uh, as a white woman to say, and I think this is a question that has to be asked because race is so prevalent in America, at every turn, what would we think about this if the person were of the other race? So what would we think, what would the perception of this running back be if he were Nick Foles or Tom Brady? What would the perception be? And at every turn, the perception would be different. And we would feel like the punishment is a bit less justified, the, the, the lighter the skin of the person experiencing punishment. Uh, but again, I would be very interested uh, in hearing Olivia's analysis of the even if it's in the contract, are there certain things that just can't be put in the contracts because they violate constitutional rights? Well, actually, sorry, it has been litigated before that, that very issue. And yeah, I mean, it has been established that 
you go into these agreements and certainly you're backed by a labor union, right? A very powerful labor union. So you have the ability to decide whether you want to enter into these contracts or not. But it has been confirmed by courts that the NFL has the right to put in these moralities clause, just like you have the right as the individual player not to sign a contract. Uh, sorry, Olivia, we got to keep rolling, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. But well, let's, let's keep rolling to our next topic, which I know is one near and dear to your heart. Yeah, it's actually about stressed lawyers. So you may have some expertise in the matter. The pandemic, lo and behold, is affecting young lawyers' mental health and also the secrecy of firms isn't helping all that much, Rich. Yeah, so we have tracked the story extensively, especially during the pandemic. For years on this show, we've covered, you know, the uh, epidemic, some would say, of attorneys um, being stressed, you know, and that leading to uh, a disproportionate amount of drug use, suicide, some other behavior, uh, alcoholism among lawyers. Uh, it seems to have gotten worse during the pandemic, not just among lawyers, which we'll talk to Olivia about, but Troy, also among, you know, all of us. There's no one who can say that the pandemic hasn't affected them emotionally, socially in many ways. But Olivia, it does seem to have affected lawyers in, in many different ways. We talked earlier to Patrick about, you know, how, how uh, younger lawyers are often the first to be let go during layoffs and they're more worried about getting work. Um, because, you know, uh, higher billing attorneys want to keep that work. So this is obviously your bread and butter. You deal with this every day. We don't have a ton of time, but is the pandemic making lawyers more stressed out? So I'm going to give kind of a cagey answer and then explain it quickly. No, the pandemic is not making more, uh, making lawyers more stressed out. Lawyers' thoughts during the pandemic are making them feel more stressed. Um, and that's really, it's the thoughts that cause the uncertainty that produce the stress. Lawyers are, I think, a little bit less tolerant of feeling uncertain than some other breeds, but it really goes to managing your thoughts and managing your mind. And the firm secrecy doesn't help. When there's more transparency, people have less certainty or less uncertainty, so they're able to feel a little bit more grounded, a little bit more in the know, uh, a little less confused or worried, but really it's their thinking throughout this process that makes them feel so uneasy and so unsteady, nervous, anxious, and stressed. And I think firms, I'm really surprised with the lack of response. I think a lot of the wellness initiatives going on during this time are superficial. Uh, I think firms should respond and really up the ante when it comes to bringing in tools and solutions for their younger teams. That being said, I also think the responsibility and onus goes on these young attorneys as well. If firms aren't going to step up and really take meaningful action to implement, co you know, there are some of the big law firms have brought in full-time coaches, not to say that I'm not biased in this matter, but I think having access to someone on a consistent basis is really important. If they're going to make meaningful strides, that's one way to do it. But if firms aren't stepping up, the onus is on the young attorneys to take their wellness and well-being into their own hands and seek out these resources and work with someone. Troy, you represent other professionals, principals, uh, specifically all over the city. What are you seeing from uh, the folks you represent? Obviously, a very stressful time for principals as they're juggling, you know, in the best of times. I know a lot of principals. I'm friends with a lot of them. Uh, I, you know, I've served on a couple of LSCs. I'm on a, a, another school board. In the best of times, these are you know incredibly high-performing individuals, very dedicated to their students and their schools with a low, you know, really low resources. So, in the best of times, it's stressful. You can only imagine what your members are going through today. 
Absolutely. We did a survey of our members at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, and we asked the question about having um, uh, conditions that might make them more vulnerable to COVID. Do they have any of those conditions listed by the CDC? Or are they caring for people with those kinds of conditions? One-fourth, 25% of our members had conditions, had two or more conditions that would have made them more vulnerable. And 54% either had them or cared for someone who was having them. And so initially we were asking the question just in the sense of who needs to be protected from this more. But then we thought about it. What is it about working in CPS that where the job is so stressful that a quarter of the principals in this district have conditions that make them more vulnerable? Because I don't think you see that kind of percentage in many other professions. 25% had conditions that would make them more vulnerable. Heart disease, asthma, you name the list, they had this. What is it about working in CPS that does this? Number two, during the pandemic, it's gotten even worse, particularly with the lack of accountability and transparency from CPS. If you are a partner in a law firm or part of the management of a law firm and one of your clients informed you about a change in the law firm's policies that you were not aware of, would you consider yourself to be management in that law firm? That is the existence of a Chicago public school principal. We often find out about district policy changes from parents who forward us tweets sent out by the district who didn't bother to inform us. And then we're left scrambling to try and figure out how we're gonna run our schools with this new policy change that we were not in on the development of because we are not management, because we're not treated like management. And so a lot of that has added to the stress that was already there at the beginning of the pandemic. Last topic on Legal Faceoff today involves Van Halen, RIP, Eddie VH, uh, but multiple lawsuits, Rich, involving Van Halen. Yeah, we just look back, you know, we, uh, we, we love Eddie. Tina and I, Tina especially, we, we love Van Halen. We always try to pay tribute to uh, some of our musical heroes who unfortunately pass away, and we try to find a legal animal on this show. And, you know, uh, our listeners and viewers can take a look. There are Many lawsuits involving Van Halen over the years, many involving copyright, many involving trademark, but uh, we got to get no one, no, none other than my brother. My brother, Jeff Lankov, is an attorney in Los Angeles. We tried to get him on today's show, but he's actually in a deposition. But my brother deposed the late, great Edward. Does anyone know his middle name? You what does it start have? with? What's it start with? It's, it's Edwin Lodewick oh, wow. Van Halen. So this is a lawsuit from uh, April of 2005, filed by Eddie Van Halen's touring company against the Baltimore Orioles. So Van Halen was hired by the Orioles to play Camden Yards. And there was some dispute about whether they, in fact, met the obligation of the contract, and they sued Camden Yards and the Orioles. My brother represented the Orioles. And I have in my hand the transcript. It is, you've probably all seen YouTube videos or stories of some crazy batshit depositions. This is the all-time craziest. I mean, I'm only about a third of the way through it. I've highlighted some portions. I'll have them on to talk about it, but there's some, I mean, you know, in the index in the back, if you put the word, you know, the, the, the F word in there, you'll see a ton of references. And he talks about what goes on in touring. It's the most entertaining read ever. So tribute to the late, great Eddie Van Halen, but we'll try to get my brother on. But I want to get your thoughts on Van Halen, you know, kind of a lightweight end their show. Uh, Troy, you're almost as old as me, not quite, but you came up in the, you know, Van Halen era. Uh, any, any memories of Eddie Van Halen? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, 
um, Prince, uh, Carlos Santana. Um, those are, 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 are for me the greats. You know, I love Jump. That was Jump was out when I was coming of age, when I was about fourteen and fifteen, and that beautiful guitar solo he had there. The story of how he did the guitar solo on Michael Jackson's "Beat It," and right. how Quincy Jones just called him up, and he said, "Okay," and he did it for a case of beer. He was like, "Don't put my name on it because I don't want to be associated with this pop music." And he went in, rearranged Michael Jackson's song, did, laid down the solo. Mike loved the rearrangement, and he got paid with a case of beer, man. Like, that is a classic Eddie Van Halen story. Uh, so, yeah, I love his music. Eruption, of course, one of the all-time great solos. Uh, yeah, so he's one of the greats, man. Olivia, you're too young, but the classic debate for Van Halen fans is Hagar or David Lee Roth, right? I mean, Eddie Van Halen was amazing for both ends, but... You're generally either a David Lee Roth originalist. We talked earlier about textualism, originalism, uh, about the Supreme Court. You're either a textualist and believe in the, you know, original text of Van Halen with only David Lee Roth, or you're a Hagar person. I'm a David Lee Roth fan, but I actually, I didn't mind, you know, the late 80s, 90s version of them with, uh, with Sammy Hagar, but that's probably a little bit before your time. That's funny that you bring this up. I was actually watching a documentary on Van Halen last weekend. Uh, and they were talking about just how serious Eddie Van Halen was about the music and how he struggled with kind of the stunts and the theatrics, um, Roth's theatrics. So I'd say I'm a little bit more theatrical myself, so I'll go David Lee Roth on this one. There you go. All right, we got to go around the horn and, and pick our favorite Van Halen song. And with that, I, we'll, get Tina, we'll get Tina to weigh in on hers. We miss Tina, but she's a big Van Halen fan. Sam, don't give me an obvious one like you always do. Don't say jump. You know, don't say Panama even. You gotta, no, I was going to say Panama. And Panama, no way. Go deeper in the well. What do you I, Troy and Olivia, I love how he asked me for my favorite song and then says, but if it is your favorite song, you can't say it. So um, how about uh, how about Running With The Devil? Can I say there that? It's a okay. good one. All right, fine. Troy's you. favorite van. You mentioned a couple already. Uh, why can't this be love? Even though I love David Lee Roth. Uh, I love Why Can't This Be Love. Yeah, well, that was a whole new era. That, that really, that whole album propelled them to a different, I mean, to be fair, it's a Sammy Hagar, great singer, but that whole era made them a whole different band. They started to play football stadiums and sold millions of records. So amazing to see two different incarnations of a band, both with its own sort of pluses and minuses. Well, it's like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and yeah. Young. You yeah. like them with Young, without Young, I love them both. <laughs> we will not talk about the Gary Sharon era, though, of Van Halen. That didn't go that well. But Olivia, favorite Van Halen or Van Hagar song? You Really Got Me. Ah, that's a great one. Remake of the Kings. I love, there's a song called All Wait from uh, 1984. Oh, I love that one too. Yeah. You know, the, the opening to All Wait is like a, <laughs> that's a, two, good one. a two minute intro and it's just incredible. It's, it's yep. one of my favorites. But Eddie Van Halen, rest in peace. Uh, great, one of the all time great opponents we've covered on this show. And, uh, uh, we, we really thank you guys for being on the show. You guys were awesome. We could literally fill a couple more hours because you guys are so impassioned and amazing guests. You'll have to come back on. Would love to. Thank you so much. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...